I don't know when the last time I shared was. It seems like it was 1974 or something like that. But all, all this that's, God willing, going to come is kind of a response to the Lord speaking to me at Dr. Yeboah's Dr. Yeboah's funeral. And uh, somebody talked about when they were eulogizing him, maybe it was one of his daughters, about that he ran the race. You know, that Dr. Yeboah had, had run the race and that he'd finished the race. And, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So when I went home, I started with the scripture that they shared. And then there's another one, and I'm sorry, Kennard, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. And last week, there was like that many. I hate to tell you this, but this week there's this many, except I broke it up. It'll be at least two, maybe maybe it'll be three messages. But for me personally, one scripture is enough, right? For all of us, it should be. If, if there's a truth, a, a principle stated in the scripture, then it's true. We don't need to have ten to make the other nine or the other one true. But it's to me, it's very helpful and powerful to see from a different perspective, a different perspective, a different perspective, a different perspective. And sometimes it's like the, you ever heard the story about the, you know, the, I don't know, five guys that were blind and they were asked to describe an elephant. And one guy's standing in front of the elephant, but he's blind and he's got the elephant by the trunk and he's feeling the trunk and and then another guy's standing next to him and he's got the elephant by the ear and another one's got the elephant by the tail and another one's got the elephant by the leg and they come together and somebody says, okay, you know, number one, tell me what an elephant looks like. He says, oh, elephants are long and narrow. That's what they look like. And number two says, no, they don't. They're flat and like they're like a pancake. And the third one says, no, elephants are like a tree trunk. I mean, I don't know what you guys are thinking. Well, they're all describing correctly the part of the elephant that they actually experienced. But if you took all of their experience and listened to the description, you could get a much fuller perspective on what an elephant really looks like. And that's what I think happens when you hear Jesus speak to a topic and Paul speak to a topic and James speak to a topic and Peter speak to a topic and and you get this bigger picture even though any piece of it was absolutely true. And so there's a lot of scripture that I'm going to share with you in the next few weeks. But I think it will enrich you in that you'll see the elephant, you know, more fully. So the talk then is about this life we have with Christ that Paul primarily describes as a race. It's like running a race. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to the point where the race is really about faith. And, and you could say, well, no, it's about you know, loving your neighbor or it's about holiness. And, and I would say, yep, to all that stuff. But there's really nothing that you can't put under the umbrella that would be covered by faith as a Christian. So I think we cover them all. Let me start here. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Oh, it's funny this morning. I, was, I, I actually moved some around. That's how I got it to. I could make it shorter. Um, and I had this scripture. And, I, and then I went up there and I rearranged them. And it's like, wait a minute. It's in there twice. Like I didn't have enough scripture already. I had to use some more than once. 
So there's a few of them in here that are actually in here twice, and, and you'll see this one again. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, Apostle Paul speaking, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. 2 Timothy 2.5, Paul again, Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So Paul is talking about this race, and it's important to understand, you know, in our mind's sense of a race, there could be six people racing or eight people racing, but only one gets to win. That's not this race. This race isn't against each other. This race is against the race. So it'd be like, I'm, I'm going to run a marathon. I'm just going to run a marathon. That's going to be my race. The objective isn't to beat somebody else running a marathon. The objective is to finish the race. Now, maybe Teresa wants to run a marathon with me. And we're going to be running this race. And I might, I might want to quit running at some point. Her objective isn't to beat me in the race as my wife or as a Christian sister. Her objective is to see that we both finish the race. My objective is to see that we both finish the race. So when you hear all these metaphors about winning a race, it's not competing against other people. It's competing against the race. So that when the race gets real steep and you just want to give up, that you compete against not giving up, that you actually keep running the race. Amen? Okay. All right. Race is a good metaphor because a race has kind of three parts. It has a beginning, it has a middle, or the racing, like a first step, most all the steps, and the final step. I think that sometimes when we present the gospel to people or when the gospel is presented to us, it's presented as a race that only has a start and a finish that happen at the same time. None of this would make any sense if that were true. When Paul speaks to the race, he's speaking to entering the race. That's your confession of faith. He speaks to running the race. That's the grind sometimes. It's the glory. I got to share the gospel today. Part of my race was sharing the gospel today. That was awesome. But some days, not so awesome. Some days there's persecution. Some days the devil's trying to get me to think thoughts that aren't true. And I have to run the race. I have to fight the fight that I might continue till I finish the race. The finish of the race is when you take your last breath. Or the rapture happens, I guess. Right? But let's just say that the rapture is going to happen after all of us die. Just, just, that's just hypothetical. That might not be true. Thank you, Bruce. Finishing the race happens when you go from this part of life to the next part of life, right? Do you know that every person is eternal? 
Every person is eternal. Nobody ceases to exist. Everyone is eternal. Now, when you pass from this life, you, you're either going to spend eternity one way or spend eternity a different way. But you're going to spend eternity. You're not going to have the sadness of being with God and then not ever being with God again. You're going to be with God forever. Or the benefit of eternal damnation, the wrath of God, and ever get free of it. So everybody is eternal. That's an important thing to understand. But the race we're talking about here ends when this physical life ends. Paul said, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that I myself will not be disqualified. So you would see an indication here that that we could be disqualified from the race. And and I'm going to show you what I think that is. But that word in, in the Greek that disqualified is translated from, and I don't know how to say it, but A-D-O-K-I-M-O-S, adokimos. That works, adokimos. It's, it's translated in the New Testament as depraved, disqualified, which is the way it was translated here, fail the test, rejected, unapproved, worthless. So there's some sense that we could actually be disqualified from the race, and we wouldn't actually finish the race. And if we don't finish the race, then we don't get this imperishable wreath that we would carry on into eternity. I think if you were to take the race and everything that it encompasses and, and, and boil it down to one word to describe the beginning, the running of, and the finishing, that word would be faith. So, just get faith, hold her hand, walk till you die, and you should be good to go. <laughs> Sounds easy, all right. Yeah. <laughs> faith only got two hands. We better find a different faith. Hebrews 11 gives us a definition of faith. And, and I'll read it to you out of the NASB. And I would have read it out of the King James, except I haven't downloaded the King James up there. But the New King James pretty well matches the King James. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 in the NASB. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, excuse me, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. Man, Teresa, could you bring me my little Santa Claus water bottle there? No, I use this one with penguins and snowflakes and scarves and things. Excuse me one minute. I'm sure I'll be better now. But listen to it in King James, New King James. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. So... So the good testimony is righteousness, right? Abraham expressed faith to God, and God credited that to Abraham as righteousness, a good testimony, um, gained approval in the New American Standard. Assurance or substance of things hoped for. So, so in one sense, when, um, when we pray according to God's will, believing, then we know that we receive what we've asked from God, right? 
I've been praying that my eyesight would be restored. I don't want to wear corrective lenses anymore. I think in my next assignment with the Lord, it's going to be 90 degrees most days, and sweat will get on my glasses, and that makes me unhappy. I want restored vision. I prayed for it. You prayed for it. I've been praying for it. Faith is the substance until the evidence is natural. The substance is faith of my eyes being restored. It's the... <laughs> that was, couldn't have been more perfect. It's the evidence of things not seen. <laughs> Honestly, that was just by accident. <laughs> but, but that's what you hold on to, right? If you're praying for something, you know, really substantial, and you're not seeing the manifestation, the substance of that thing, the evidence of that truth is in your faith, even though it's not in nature yet. Amen? Okay. Hebrews 11.6. I'm just going to call you Susan for today because all I just want to do is make faith jokes. Forgive me. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, him being God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. So if you pray for something, asking for something, whether you see it or not, You've expressed faith, and you've pleased God because you stood in faith, and you pleased God. Without faith, doubting, that's why when you read like in Hebrews or in some of the Old Testament stories, you find, you find God being very, very displeased, angered because of unbelief, because he would demonstrate himself and then they would be in a place of testing, and then they would deny his faithfulness in the test, and they would make him angry because there was no faith to please him, even though he had demonstrated himself to be faithful again and again and again. So faith, expressing faith, is how we please God. (laughs) You think it's easy up here. I'm... It isn't that hard, except I get easily distracted sometimes. Here is is just a Pat Brady summary of like the running the race. What does faith look like in really macro terms? Faith looks like serving God. And you know, let me say the end at the beginning. Everything that I'm about to say here they're, they're basically the same, but they're nuanced in their differences. But they're all faith, if, you, if you'll see it that way. Serving God is faith. Believing God is faith. Trusting God is faith. And loving God is faith. Okay? Now, believing God and trusting God are not necessarily the same thing. When... Um, When there's a mountain that needs to move, and it's taken almost four years, because I'm a little bit before the actual get, you know, the done thing for Adeline's adoption. At the beginning, you believe God. But in the middle, you had to trust God. Because without the test, the believing isn't the full, right? 
it's only it's only the full when you trust God. So I believe God for the miracles that I see in the Bible. I trust God when I pray for them to come now in this world. Get it? Right? I believe God. I believe that he raises the dead. But if then somebody, if I'm challenged to raise the dead, I have to trust God because now my faith is being tested. Right? Serving God, believing God, trusting God, loving God. If you think about your walk with Jesus in those terms, serving God, believing God, and then trusting him when your believing is being tested, and then loving him. Like, great example of loving God, maybe the example of loving God, is love your neighbor as yourself. God says, if you love me, you obey me. If you don't obey me, you don't love me. He says, oh my goodness, I should have put these in here. He says in John chapter 15, he says... If you love me, you'll obey me. This command I give to you, that you love each other as I, has lo- as I have loved you. So what, he's, what Jesus is saying is if you want to express your love to God, then you love each other the way he loves you. And his love went to the cross. It's a sacrificial love. So when you say loving God, okay, no, I love God, but I can't stand this one you're not really loving God very well. You're not expressing faith in the sense that you're, you're loving God because he said, the way you love me is obedience, and I'm telling you to love that one the same way that I loved you while you were yet a sinner. Amen. So, I don't claim that I will give you every manifestation of faith, but, but faith has manifestations. One manifestation of faith is what I would call, or, or the Bible would call, saving faith. The faith that takes you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Saving faith. That faith that you express to get born again. And another manifestation of faith, and this is my own word, is, is kind of working faith. Um, it's the evidence of saving faith is working faith. So an evidence of saving faith that's a working faith, the thing that manifests every single day or should, is love. Another example um, of working faith might be our witness of Christ himself. That if we actually have saving faith, then we'll have the witness of a transformed life. We'll be different. We won't be the same. Our life will be different. Bailey, if you choose to pick Jesus... Light over darkness. It's a big decision. It's free, but it costs you everything. Your life will change. You'll be different. Can't help it. It's just how it is because you'll be born again. So um, the witness of saving faith through working faith would be a transformed life or, or power, a power in our life that, that would witness itself to not just miraculous things, but, but holding on to things, faith that moves mountains, um, a witness faith. Another working faith would be manifested in seeing prayers answered. Whatsoever you ask, believing, trusting God, know that you have it. That would be an example of working faith. Another uh, example of working faith is warfare faith. In Ephesians 6, we have faith 
being described as an element of armor, a shield, that we would use when we're doing battle, spiritual warfare. So there's a certain faith, a way of expressing faith in its working process that we would use in a, in a warfare sense as we're running this race, fighting this fight, and we would use faith as a shield. So then, let's talk about the first aspect of faith, saving faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 8 and 9, Some of some of you, maybe me, but some of you catch things like numbers and patterns and stuff like that. I thought it was interesting to notice that the three scriptures I have here to, to talk about saving faith are in two different books and two different chapters, but both verses 8 and 9. And the third one is 38 and 39. So I don't know those that figure that stuff out. If 8 and 9 means anything, what's 8 plus 9? 17. <laughs> Look at that. How about that? Okay, we'll just leave that one there. Ephesians chapter eight or chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So... God, in his wonderfulness, offers us this thing called salvation, reconciliation, reconciled back to him. It's by his grace that we have access to this. And his grace is expressed in salvation happening in two ways. The first way he expresses grace towards us is to even give us the option to be saved. He's not obligated in any way to offer us any reconciliation to him. He could leave us in our rebellious state, in our sin, and then we could suffer the consequence of that sin, which we would deserve the eternal wrath of God. But by his grace, he gives us the opportunity. He's willing that we would be reconciled to him. That's an act of grace. He's not obligated to do it, but he does anyway. That's graceful. The second act of grace comes that you could even respond to it. Do you understand that that without God's grace, you can't even respond to the offer of salvation? He has to give another act of grace in order for that to happen. In John chapter 6, in two places, it says, no one comes to the Son unless they're drawn by the Father. That's grace. In 1 Corinthians 1, I think, or 2, it says that spiritual matters are only spiritually discerned. That we can discern, those of us that are born again, we can discern spiritual matters like salvation because we have the Holy Spirit. They're discerned by the Spirit. That's how we can do it. Otherwise, we can't. It says that to the carnal mind, to the, to the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, that it's foolishness. All of these spiritual things. So when you talk to somebody about about spiritual matters, and they're like, it's because that's what it is to them. It's nonsense to them. So how then does a person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit discern the matter of the grace that God's offering them that they might be saved? That spiritual matter. It's only by the grace of God that they can do that. So so we can do it because we have the Holy Spirit. The unsaved person can only do it by 
the Holy Spirit in the sense that God gives them a grace to be able to understand. So if you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they're fighting with you and arguing with you, there's only one of two things that's going on there. Either the grace isn't present and that's a fool's errand. You're, you're chattering and they cannot hear what you're saying. It's impossible. Or they've just chosen to deny God's grace. They've been hardened, who knows what. And again, they're not going to respond. That's why we never have to fight with anybody. We should never fight with anybody to try to convince them about responding to the gospel because it can only happen by grace. And if they reject the grace, it's just not going to happen. Now, you can help them to understand, but fighting with someone over that is just dumb. Don't do it. Okay, so it's by grace, God's grace, that you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, that, that God has to even provide you the grace to express faith. But the way that you respond to his offer of salvation is through faith. He offers you grace. You respond in faith. Covenant is made. You're born again. You're saved. You're redeemed, um, regenerated. All words that express what happens in that moment that that grace is offered, and you respond in faith. Romans 10, 8, and 9, this is where I think is the best place you see the response of faith demonstrated in the Scriptures. This is the Apostle Paul. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, understand what Paul is saying here is this is the gospel. It's the word of faith. And it's near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. You're hearing, you, you have this grace is coming upon you. He calls it the word of faith, which he preaches. I'm certain that what Paul is saying is I'm preaching the gospel to you here. Okay. That if, here's the response. He's preached the gospel, the word of faith. Here's how you respond. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, there's a grace that goes out with the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, and there's a response called faith that's required that can only happen by the grace of God. No one comes to the Son unless they're drawn by the Father, right? And the way you respond to the gospel with faith is repent and believe. Repent is to confess Jesus as Lord, that he would have lordship over your life, that, that you no longer are the master of your life, I'm giving you a little more detail there, kiddo. That, that Jesus would be the Lord of your life, the king, the master. Because today you're the master of your life. You get to decide. You decide what you think. You decide how you're going to react to things. You decide what you're going to do, where you're going to go, when you're going to do it. If you're going to be nice, if you're going to be mean. You own all that because you're the Lord of your life. But if you respond to the gospel in faith that God will give you, then you recognize that you being Lord of your life was just a train wreck, especially as it relates to your relationship with God. And that if Jesus were the Lord of your life, then you can walk in the light as he is in the light, and you can have fellowship with him, one another. So your first portion of response is to repent from you being the king of your life and hand that lordship over to Jesus. The second is to uh, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And, and, and what that represents, it's a summary statement as well, but what it represents is your understanding that Jesus was made an offering to God for your sin. He offered himself as the perfect and spotless lamb on behalf of your sin debt that you couldn't pay. 
And your faith in his resurrection means that you recognize that God accepted that offering. In the resurrection, we know that because the wage of sin is death. Jesus would have stayed dead if he was an unacceptable offering to God. The fact that death had no hold on him indicates that he had no sin and he was truly the spotless lamb of God, accepted by God. So now by your faith, you're trusting in that and your confession of repentance, God receives you back into his reconciled relationship eternally by faith. Get it? Everybody's looking down. Not everybody. Patty's looking up. You're looking up. That's an important thing. That's the basis of our salvation. That's, that's the best place where saving faith is expressed. Okay. The final one I wanted to share with you in that topic is this. Hebrews ten thirty-eight and 39. When it starts with but, context would probably be handy, but you can go back and look at this. But my righteous one shall live by faith. That statement is from Habakkuk, I think, somewhere in the Old Testament, that statement. And then it's quoted in Galatians, in Hebrews, and Romans. Thank you. Who was that? Kevin? Somebody put a star on his forehead. And Romans. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, the righteous one, my soul has no pleasure in him. What, what would he be shrinking back from in that context? Faith. That's right. Not holiness, not righteousness. Because holiness and righteousness, while those are, those are practice things, they're ultimately things that we only get by faith. So if we shrink back from faith, shrinking back from righteousness might be an indication of shrinking back from faith. But what he's talking about here is shrinking back from faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul, God's soul, has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So if we were to shrink back from faith in, in, a, 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 in, in the sense of apostasy, not faith, then we would shrink back to destruction, Right? But he's exhorting, or she, whoever wrote Hebrews, is exhorting them that that's not who you are. I'm telling you, that's not who you are. But it's not impossible that it could be if we shrink back. If we shrink back, it's to destruction. But if we don't shrink back, then the, we have this faith that comes to the ultimate pres, pre, <laughs> preserving of our souls. Does that make sense? Can you see? The, the point I guess I want you to understand is that, that you're going to hit hills in the race. You're going to hit potholes in the race. You're going to be running the race and your foot's going to step in a nasty pothole and your ankle's going to twist and metaphorically and it's going to hurt like crazy and you might just not want to run the race anymore because it's just not that fun. And you have to understand that the race only benefits you if you finish it. Okay? All right. And that, that the, the race that you're racing isn't against anybody else. It's really kind of against faith against you holding fast to faith. If you have faith at the beginning, you start the race. If you maintain faith during the, the, the racing part, you're there. You're still you know, on the narrow way, maybe, as Jesus described. And if you're possessing faith 
when the race is done, this life, then you get the prize. Okay, so that's, that's faith expressed in a save, as saving faith. Let's talk a little bit about faith as like working, running, living faith. Um, back to 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? This is important. Run in such a way, run in such a way that you may win. In our context, finish. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, Then, or they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, an eternal wreath. Therefore, I run in such a way, run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So there's a, there's a particular running of the race. You run it in such a way when Paul's flesh wants to take him onto a different place than the race of faith, that he beats his body into discipline right back. Get on the track. You follow the line. You stay on that narrow path. That's what he's talking about. It, it's a conscious act of surrendering our will to God as faith. Daily. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 is another expression of maybe the evidence of working faith or the proof of faith. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So someone can have faith, I believe, but if that faith isn't coupled with a transformed life that would say, wow, you know, maybe they don't need food in a blanket, but they can't flush their toilet in their house, and you don't have some compelling inside of you, it's, it's a thing that would say that your faith isn't working, that there's something broken in your faith. It should it should move you towards even maybe even a greater example would be um, towards mercy. Somebody somebody does something horrible that's offense that offends you or hurts you in a terrible way, and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth would be a legitimate response, except not according to faith. And and faith would offer mercy to that person and forgiveness to that person. That would be an example of faith with works. That would be an example of faith that would evidence that it was actually saving faith that you had working. I, I should have put this one in. There's a scripture that speaks to this or this or this, but faith working through love. Faith, faith expressing itself through love. So maybe if you took now this working, living our faith thing, it has components, like a component would be contending or fighting. So our faith must be contended for. It must be fought for. Our faith, I guess because God does it, must be tested. It must be constantly, continuously tested. And our faith must be enduring faith. So let me just give you some scriptures that speak to these. 
contending or fighting. Jude chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard the term greasy grace? No? No. Greasy grace. Greasy grace is this. You're just a fallen person. You're just a sinner saved by grace. And you're not going to do anything but sin, but thank God for God's grace. And sure, you know, you do this and you do this and you do this that are all bad things, but God understands and thank goodness for his grace. That's licentiousness. That's somebody giving you a license to do what God does not give you a license for and what God does not give grace for in the sense of licentious, in the sense of licentiousness. So, can I commit a sin and get grace from God? Absolutely. God doesn't have an expectation of my sinless perfection, but he does have an expectation of my sincere heart. So, when I stumble in sin, God doesn't look at my behavior. He looks to my heart, and when he sees a sincere heart, he looks past the sin. It doesn't matter. Not that it doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter into my eternal relationship with God. But if I have somebody that comes to me and they says, well, say, well, you know, I can understand why you do that. And, and, you know, you have a lot of hurts and this and that. And, and God understands. So I think it's okay that you do that. I've given them a license to sin. There is no grace for that. And so when we're contending for our faith, we have to be careful that we contend for our faith. In this context, there were people that snuck into the church unnoticed and they start sharing this greasy grace, the licentious doctrine within the church and he's like, no, you have to contend for your faith. It sounds good when someone tickles your itching ears and tells you what you want to hear instead of telling you what you don't want to hear. When your flesh wants something, it's very powerful in its desire if it's not crucified, right? So your tendency in your flesh could be to accumulate for yourself people in your circle, teachers even, that will tell you what you want to hear and give you license where God does not give license and tell you that his grace covers you where he's not given you grace. So we have to contend for the faith, the true faith, the real faith. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. Oh my gosh. 8 and 9. <laughs> 18 and 19, how about that? Okay, Paul speaking to Timothy, his son in the faith. This faith, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So, Paul's telling Timothy that there's this fight that you're going to have to fight. And you fight this good fight called faith. Because if you don't fight as you're running the race to keep your faith, 
your very faith could be shipwrecked, in which case you don't finish the race and you don't get the prize. First Timothy, again, now chapter 6, similar. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The good confession, I think, is Timothy's response to the gospel. In front of many witnesses, my guess is referencing his baptism. Baptism is a big deal. You make your confession of faith as you go into and come out of the waters of baptism. That's where you declare to the world, to all eyes, that you've died to yourself, that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and that faith says that you have died and you've been resurrected in Christ unto eternal life. And when your buddy comes to you and he says, hey, how about this that used to be your practice? You say, no. Why? Because I'm dead to that person, but I'm alive to this person. That confession happens in our baptism. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. One of the reasons why, one of the reasons why I think that um, all of this, there's some of the commentators that say that, no, 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 destruction means loss of reward. I don't think so. I think destruction means destruction. Not like Jesus is going to take all your presents because you messed up and just beat them with a bat and break them and you lost that reward. There are, there are things that we do that won't make it through the testing fires and won't be treasure for us in heaven. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about destruction. It's talking eternal reward. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then finally for today, see, they could have waited two minutes. They would have heard the whole thing. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So with our faith, every lie of the devil can be dealt with. He didn't say the easy ones. He didn't say the easy ones and some of the tough ones. He said all. So every flaming arrow. Now a flaming arrow or some translations call them fiery darts. These are thoughts that the enemy can place into our minds. Very tricky. Thoughts that sound just like any other thought. They feel like a thought. They're our thoughts. They're just our thoughts. Oh, la, 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 la. But they're not our thoughts. They're flaming arrows. And the way that you deal with flaming arrows is faith. What's the thought say? What does God say? If you choose to agree with God says, what God says by faith, then your faith acts like a shield that extinguishes the flaming arrow, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every lofty thing that exalts itself above a true knowledge of God, faith is what you use to extinguish those things. That's how the devil attacks us in our identity. He tells us who we are. God tells us who we are. When everything feels like the devil is right, faith extinguishes the lie. Nope, I don't care what that says. I don't care all the evidence you try to give me to make it seem true. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am knit together by the very hands of God. He spent more thoughts on me than grains of sand in the ocean. He doesn't create junk. I reject you. You're a lie. Faith extinguishes that arrow. Okay. So that's it for today. Just 
understand. I don't know if you're getting a sense. Maybe you already had a sense. But we need to protect our faith. We need to guard it with everything that we have. We need to guard it against the lies of licentiousness. We need to guard it against the lies of the enemy. We need to believe what God says and hold fast to that faith. Otherwise, we could have shipwreck. You know, there's an eternal sense, a shipwreck of an eternal sense, and there's a shipwreck of a day-to-day working faith sense. And, and we can have a shipwreck of even our day-to-day sense of faith that brings about the works of God through our lives, the joy of God in our hearts. So we have to be careful not only from an, an eternal perspective, but also from a day-to-day glorifying God perspective. And I had this in a later spot, but I'll just give this to you now. I had great faith for healing. Teresa and I would pray for people. We saw so many, I mean, you've heard most of the stories, but I mean, we're not talking a headache went away, which is an awesome miracle. We're talking paralyzed arms. We're talking brand new body parts. I mean, give me a break. That is pretty awesome stuff. And then the Lord tested my faith. And it didn't happen, and it didn't happen, and it didn't happen, and then it happened a little, and then it didn't, then it didn't, then it didn't. And I didn't guard my faith. You'll see about testing next week. We'll start in testing next week. And I think I lost my faith to the point where I'm now recognized, well, really for a little while I've recognized that my faith was tested and I failed the test. And I'm asking God if I can have it back. Because it's still every once in a while I'll see the manifestation of the miracle. But I don't see it like anything like before because I didn't hold fast. I didn't guard my faith. It doesn't matter what I see. It doesn't matter that the last hundred of them, I didn't see anything happen. It matters that your word says that I am anointed to heal the sick and that I would continue to exercise my faith. It got a little shipwrecked. Your faith is very important. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you, Lord, that you sanctify us in this truth. I pray, Lord, that we would be sanctified according to your word, that we would guard our faith with all our hearts, that it's more precious than gold. If there be anyone in this place, anyone anyone in this place right now who has an area, like I just confessed, Lord, you tested me in my faith and I failed. If there's anybody in this place today whose faith is being tested and they need the prayer, the strengthening like Jesus did for Peter, that their faith won't fail. Lord, I pray you stir them so that they know. I pray that they take somebody's hand and say, pray with me that my faith won't fail. That we might please you with our faith, Lord. That we might walk in faith. That we might go this race step by step, minute by minute, decision by decision, test by test, and be victorious, that each and every one of us, Lord, will receive the prize, the imperishable wreath, the crown of righteousness. We make these prayers to you in Jesus' name. Amen.